From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, in today's podcast, I talk with Claire O'Neill. Now, she led Britain's bid to host COP26 and she led the effort to put Britain's net zero legislation in place. Now, she's joined the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. So essentially, she's seen both sides of of this thing, the government side and now the business side. But it really seems like there's a lot to do to join them up. So one observation she made in our conversation really struck home with me. She said that the word business is literally not mentioned in the final declaration from the Glasgow meetings. Wow. I mean, what struck me too is that the role of business may arguably be even more important as we go on, especially given that international relations are looking increasingly fractured. Given the invasion of Ukraine, international tensions are riding high, and there must be concern about how unified a front governments will be able to mount at COP27 in Egypt later this year. Well, indeed. But Claire's very definitely betting on the business sector to deliver. She says in our chat that you've seen governments appearing to move away from net zero targets, But no companies are saying they are going to slow down their net zero transition. In fact, I think we're seeing the opposite. Companies are accelerating efforts to get to net zero. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Over to you, Janet. Claire O'Neill was a member of the British Parliament from 2010 to 2019 and was UK Minister for Climate Change and Industry and then Minister for Energy and Clean Growth. In 2019, she brought forward the country's groundbreaking net zero legislation and she led the UK's winning bid to host the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26. She served as COP26 president-designate until she left politics in 2020. Claire has now joined the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. She was the Managing Director for Climate, Energy and Natural Climate Solutions and now chairs the Global Imperatives Advisory Board for the Council. Council is the leading voice for business sustainability. It's a global CEO-led organisation representing combined revenue of over $8 trillion and 19 million employees. Welcome, Claire. Thank you, Janet. I'd like to start by asking about the path that led you to specialising in sustainability and the fight against climate change. You studied geography at Oxford, I believe. Was that the start of your journey? And how did you get from there to being the UK government's lead on climate change? Gosh, it's a, it's a long journey. Well, so my my dad actually got me quite interested in meteorology as, as quite a young person. So he was a sailor. And so I, I, I distinctly remember being taken to the, the weather station, the Met Office weather station in Bracknell at quite a young age and 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 I did do geography and I specialized in physical geography in particular climate landforms remote sensing so I I was well you know schooled if you like in the in the science of it all but then I went off and did you know businessy things and had a family and and genuinely I had a moment I lived in America for a long time I moved back to the UK and I'd been away for about 12 years and I thought the climate had changed materially now people always say when they were young it was colder it was sunnier but it felt and data supported it that our springs were earlier, we had fewer frost days, that there was something going on. And it sort of struck me that this had happened in a relatively short time. And it actually coincided with me having my family, three quite young children at this point, and starting to get very concerned 
not just about the global situation, but also about what was happening locally, whether it was transport management or waste management. And to give you a frame of reference, this was about 2005, just as we were starting to get aware, become aware of what we called climate chaos then. You'll you'll remember Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, etc. So it all kind of came together. And I actually approached, I wasn't, had never been political. I then approached the the Conservative Party in the UK through a couple of contacts I had. And I said, can I help you in some of the policy areas, particularly in this space? And eventually I ended up becoming an advisor to the shadow chancellor at that point and doing all kinds of stuff, including some work on on climate and energy policy. And then I just decided that maybe I should have a go at getting elected. And if you'd said to me, you know, a girl from a comprehensive school who wasn't particularly political, you'd end up being a conservative member of parliament, it would have been a very big surprise. But I got elected and I did all sorts of things. But I had basically said, you know, from an early uh, start, I'd really love to try and get involved into the climate and energy space if possible, and was delighted to be given that portfolio, and subsequently attended cabinet in that portfolio seat, which was which was quite unusual. Before I go back to the issue of climate change, what was it like being a politician now oh, that you've left? Well, look, I gave it 12 years and, and I and I went into politics really because it was super interesting. I, I represented the area I lived in, Wiltshire, and I wanted to try and make a difference locally. And my goodness, what a time to, to be in the political space, you know, through we had three general elections, you know, a referendum on Scottish independence, and then we had the Brexit referendum. So it was never a dull moment. But ultimately, I delivered a lot for my constituents. I I delivered my plan. And I honestly felt that it was time to to move on. I'm I'm not somebody who would have wanted to go in and then stay there, you know, all the way through. I think it's quite personally quite good to get in, you know, fresh, fresh blood every few years into the political space. And on the one hand, it was wonderful because we were able to do some really amazing things, particularly in the climate and energy space. We built a really strong cross-party consensus. We had great interactions with the between the government and the private sector. We were really able to do some things, whether it was the offshore wind sector deal or the powering past coal alliance. On the other hand, it was a really frustrating time because politics became quite hateful in the sort of early, late noughties or late teens and early 2020s. And we had a lot of public hatred of politicians. And also Brexit was, regardless of which side of the political divide, was a very divisive time. And I had always wanted to get back to the private sector. I was very lucky to be at this interface of public and private policymaking for for a a really important time. And I was delighted to be able to take that, take it to the World Business Council and, and now into a whole other series of roles. So when you were at Oxford uh, studying geography, were you aware of climate change back then? Yes. I mean, one of the parts of the the physical syllabus, physical geography syllabus, was historic landforms. So whether it was glaciated landforms or desert landforms, you know, we we understood very, very much, and this is back in the early 80s, the signs and signals that had shown that the climate had been materially warmer, materially wetter, materially cold or drier um, in different parts of the world. I think what has taken me by surprise since then is the speed of change. And again, this relates back to sort of thinking, gosh, this decade of change while I've been living in the States, it's really different in the UK. And you can see that on the temperature charts. So yes, I was aware of it. I understood it. Interestingly, I'm now a business fellow 
at the Smith School for Economics and Environment in, in Oxford. And it's really interesting seeing how the strength of work in the School of Geography as well has now permeated a lot of the Oxford academic ecosystem. So everybody has an opinion on how COP26, and I would love to have yours. Well, look, so when I sort of pitched the idea that the UK could host COP26, it was done on the basis that this was a really important moment in the climate negotiation space. It was the moment when the Paris Agreement was supposed to be turned into practical action. It was the moment, you know, where we really had to get to grips with this, this runaway emissions level. And of course, nobody could have predicted that COVID would happen and it would all be delayed. And and so a couple of things. So I think it was, I think it was great that it took place overall. You know, the multilateralism is fracturing, isn't it, around the world and was particularly under pressure through COVID and now, of course, through through the, the situation in Ukraine. And the fact that all of those nations can to you know to some extent suspend hostilities and get together to focus on climate change i think is hugely valuable and i do commend the uk government for for running a, you know an effective cop the challenge you have with cop is that it is a necessary but not sufficient part of the system so people say well what did you think of the cop declaration and i say well it was an eight page you know, series of words that that made a series of non-binding commitments between governments that were negotiated down to the lowest common denominator that basically said climate change is important and we should work together to do something about it. And by the way, here are some vague things that we need to do, whether it's finance or innovation. It doesn't provide anything like the level of action or rigour or cooperation that we need to really tackle the problem. And do you know how many times the word business appears in the Glasgow Declaration? Zero. And there is, I think, this this separation of mentality that says you have the politicians, and in this case, the global, you know, supranational politicians over here, and they will regulate and they will enforce. And then the rest of you can get on with it. That is not the way that you make change. So my my ongoing frustration with COP, if you like, is that it is necessary. It's great that we have that moment. Of course, we need political signalling, but it is in no way going to give us the answers that we need. And actually, one of the things I had designed into COP26 that did get delivered was a whole series of kind of real world action plans, whether it was bringing together the world's financial community and the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, whether it was a plan to phase out coal in South Africa with real money. And it was brilliant to see all of those early ideas we had actually implemented. So alongside the negotiations, we had to also have lots of real world action. So you mentioned the breakdown of internationalism, and I read a blog recently which called the invasion of Ukraine a mortal blow to internationalism. And of course, that's the sine qua non of making progress toward net zero. So how worried are you? Well, look, it's 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 awful and it's completely unexpected. And 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 in a way, as a former energy minister, I, I sit and think about how much did our energy policies contribute to the situation by basically forgetting the lessons of the 1970s, forgetting that geopolitics really matters. Um and, and so what does it do? So what does it do to the process? I mean, will people not show up at COP27? Possibly, although, you know, it's in Egypt, it's a developing country COP, you could imagine that most countries will send delegations. But I think that what has happened in the real world post-Ukraine is actually sort of, you know, it can be very encouraging. You've clearly seen Europe 
you know, pulled together in an unprecedented way when it's starting to think about energy policy, electrificate, rollout of electrification, you know, military aid. And I think that can only be to the good. You could really imagine a scenario in which Europe starts to decarbonize, you know, even faster than planned. Some the UK is 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 also thinking through its energy policy, and there will clearly be some some changes and, and possibly a short term reliance on more fossil fuels that will you know increase the amount of CO two in the atmosphere. And I think that this then you have questions about what's the US going to do, what are the other parts of the world going to do. So I think Ukraine has accelerated the low carbon transition in some parts of the world, but essentially it will lead to a bunch more CO two and methane being emitted as a short-term result. And that means if we're to be serious about net zero, we're going to have to focus not just on more rapid cuts in emissions in the future, but also carbon removal. And one of the big parts of this net zero equation, you've got to reduce carbon, you have to remove carbon, and you have to adapt to whatever the resulting uh, climate conditions are. We never talk enough about carbon removal. And for me, that is a huge missing part and also a massive opportunity for governments and the private sector. Could you give us some examples of the sort of key ways to remove carbon? So, you know, the, the, the easiest way to remove carbon is to plant lots, plant lot more, lot more trees, improve grassland, restore, you know, biodiversity, because, you know, that, that's what nature does. It sucks up CO2 and it emits, it emits oxygen, but it only stores it for a, for a medium period of time. So na- nature-based solutions, are they, as they're called, are definitely part of the answer. And by the way, if you're investing in nature-based solutions to capture carbon, you can also be restoring biodiversity and providing employment, often for you know people living in remote rural communities, often women and girls. So for me, they tick all the boxes. But I think we have to get serious about longer-term carbon removal as well. And that's where you're starting to talk about remineralizing rock, you know, putting CO2 back into the aquifers, as I call them, the reservoirs from which the oil and gas was pumped potentially doing some things there are some cool cool scientific experiments around you know whether you're putting iron filings on the ocean you're creating using chemistry effectively and so i think through through nature or through chemical carbon removals there is a massive opportunity now it's not a, it's not a panacea and one of the things that people dislike is the idea that we can continue to emit as usual and just suck it all up because we don't have the capacity and we don't have the technology to do that but it's not an either or it's a both and solution and i think increasingly we're realizing if we're serious about net zero and climate recovery this element of carbon removal has to be there it was interesting you talked about chemistry but mgi wrote a, a report quite recently called the bio revolution mm-hmm. and it talked a lot about the biological innovation which is going to play a part in sustainability and i, I wondered if you were excited about the biology uh, source I, I, I am. as well and, and look and it's you know again we as i said we always talk about trees but this but you know soil carbon carbon that's locked up in the oceans the ability to do to, to have better regenerative agricultural systems again that are providing more sustainable food systems and storing carbon and preserving water these are and by the way are the livelihoods of billions of people on the earth these are where it starts to be interesting it's difficult because it's hard to scale but the potential to do that i think is is absolutely enormous so you said um that in the short term going headlong into coal 
and fossil fuels. And, you know, the Secretary General of the UN has just said that that was madness. I mean, by the way, to listeners, we're talking about a month into the Ukraine situation. But in the short term, it looks bad. But in the longer term, you think that this will reinforce the um, progress towards net zero? I, I, I do. I think, it, I, I think it, as I said, I think there'll be a, a regional play out of this. But in a way, one of the... So, you know, one of the things we know we need to do is to decarbonize heavy industry. And we know hydrogen is the most likely molecule to do that. Green hydrogen generated from renewables is, is well out of the money. If we can accelerate some of the technology and the clustering and the investment decisions to get, you know, low carbon hydrogen to be a real catalyst and energy source, then that becomes an exportable technology around the world. And I understand the Secretary General's point of view, and, and he, is, he has been a, a, an incredible advocate of, of this. But, you know, I also understand that when you're facing an energy crisis and the cost is skyrocketing and somebody has to pay, and one of the things I used to say a lot as a minister is who's going to pay? It's either taxpayers or shareholders, or consumers. And I think all too often, particularly when we put policy costs or subsidies on consumer bills, it is the poorest people that pay this. And that, you know, even as a, you know, as a politician, that's unpalatable. I also think as somebody who cares a lot about inequality, it's unpalatable. So, of course, and then the response will be, yes, but those are the people who will face the, you know, face the consequences of climate change most severely. That's true in many parts of the world. But, you know, it's not necessarily true in, in the big developed economies. And I do think, Janet, that if perhaps this Ukrainian crisis is ushering in an age of pragmatism, because again, I go back to this disconnect between what the COP document says and what actually the real the governments are really doing. I think we just have to be really serious and pragmatic about the progress. And, and by the way, I think in, for my money is very much on the corporate sector at the moment, because while you've seen governments almost reversing away from their net zero targets, I have seen no companies who have said that they'd like to slow down their net zero transition, quite the opposite. And by the way, companies are also focused not just on climate recovery, but nature recovery and reducing inequality. And I just get, you know, it was unprecedented business engagement in COP26. And, and CEOs left COP saying, we get it. Net zero is the thing we have to do. I think most politicians left COP thinking, thank God that's over. Now we can get back to our day jobs genuinely. I mean, it, you know, it's this moment where you show up, you make a bunch of pledges and you go away again. I don't think the corporate sector, I think they're feeling for longer term heat. Now, this is I'm talking global leaders. I'm talking publicly traded companies. But there's something changing, I think, in the corporate ethos at the moment. And we should be harnessing that for all we're worth and recognising that sometimes purist government policies are just really difficult to implement. Well, I obviously want to talk about business because my personal conviction is that it's business and the self-interest of business which will actually get us somewhere. But just before we go to the business side, I had a thought that because the energy crisis related to Ukraine, but also before Ukraine means people are going to be hit in the pockets. So it's a pocketbook issue now for politicians. You know, in some ways, climate change was a, just a woolly, nice thing and we ought to sort of do yeah. something about it. So maybe 
governments take it more seriously than they did because it's an economic issue very clearly. I think you make a good point. I mean, energy is responsible for 70% of emissions directly and indirectly. And energy is a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a human right, isn't it, access to energy. But the billion people in the world have no access to electricity. We, we don't talk about them enough. Usually women and girls who were powering those economies with collecting, you know, wood and charcoal. But I think that's what I think energy and, and has come to thought on whether and, and there's this thing called the energy trilemma, which is, you know, cost, security and carbon and, and, and governments trying to balance this. By the way, I always thought there was another one which was competitive advantage. I was convinced that from an industrial strategy point of view, if you could major on what your countries were good at and your industries were good at, in the UK's case, it would be offshore wind. There were huge competitive advantages to be reaped. This is a jobs and growth story as well. But yes, I, I think that's right. And, and I think the other thing that's interesting just to throw in is, and I don't know how much this is just a UK phenomenon, but have you heard of, you know, wear a jumper for Ukraine? So, the International Energy Agency has made a point about here are some ways to wean ourselves off Russian oil and gas. One of them is to turn our temperatures down. The other is to drive less. And it, you can sort of see that people are are taking this on board that, I mean, it is quite amazing that, you know, the cost of petrol in the UK now is at unprecedented highs. People are facing energy bills that will be, you know, triple what they were paying last year, just as taxes are going up, just as food inflation is going up. And yet they're not out on the streets. And somehow it's because this sense of, okay, we get it. This is because of Russia. We're not going to give in and panic. It might just be a British thing, but there's definitely something. If you can, if you can put a face to some of these sacrifices, then it starts to make what can be a very woolly and abstract concept, as you say, which is climate change, a, a bit more real. I want to obviously talk about your work at the uh, World Business Council for Sustainable Development. But before we get there, I mean, how you have mentioned that business is absolutely vital. How important is business? Well, look, so most global, most emissions come from the private sector. I know I'm working with the world's most sort of sustainable companies. But there is something about CEO and management conviction that is that is running very strongly, whether it's because business has had a time of high profits, and there's a need to feel to give something back, whether it's because employees are now demanding you know, an, an organisation they work for that is, that is you know, on the side of angels. And we know certainly that other stakeholders, including including shareholders and investors, are, you know, very clear about this agenda. But all of these pressures seem to be combining to really get the best companies to think about it. Of course, there's greenwash. Of course, there's companies saying, well, we'll set a net zero strategy, but we don't know how we're going to get there. That, that's fine. But you just get the sense that there's a level of conviction there that, that wasn't there two years ago actually, in this broad sense. And ultimately, no one actor, no government, no private sector individual, no market in intervention can, can do this you know, on its own. We've got to have this public and private partnership. We think that there is a real groundswell of, of, of business reaction to this. I, I know that the World Council has recently published a 12-point business manifesto for climate recovery. Can you summarise what that says for our listeners? Yes, well, it basically was an effort to say, if you were to focus on 12 things, and these are for both public and private actors, it would be these. And, and it started with energy, 
because clearly energy is, is, as I say, the source of emissions. It started with methane. So we always talk about CO2, but methane is this incredibly short term, incredibly, it's short term, but incredibly potent greenhouse gas. And it's relatively easy to reduce methane levels. We talked about green grids. You know, we always chat about, oh, it's so much cheaper to generate energy using renewables. And that's true in a very specific one point example. When you have to put that energy onto a grid and manage a grid for future energy demands, this becomes much more much more difficult. So we basically, and we ended up, by the way, with proposing a mechanism called corporate determined contributions that would capture all of this corporate ambition and delivery of CO2 reduction and deliver it into the COP. Because all of these great pledges that the world, the corporate world makes, they don't go anywhere. They're reported and then they just drift off. And we thought we should put a ribbon around them and say every year, this many businesses have pledged to re- remove Y, you know, million tons of CO2. And by the way, it's gone down this year. So it was basically an attempt to say, here are the most important things. Here's what we think business and government should do together. It was very much supported by the WBCSD members, 200 plus companies. It was a joint effort. And it was considered one of the top 10 talking points for COP26. So it had, had a good impact. So this this idea of of putting a red ribbon mm. around corporate commitments. I mean, that's a role modelling exercise, isn't it? Here's what the, you know, your big competitors are doing. Are you doing the same? Yes, and I think it's, I agree. And it's also an attempt to get over this accusation of greenwash, which is, you know, every year we march a whole bunch of companies up the hill and they come to COP and they say, we're going to do this, this and this. And then it goes away again. And that is not the fault of the companies. It is because in the COP system, every year, the, the, the host country changes, the champions change, and the action agenda changes. And there is no statutory way of running through all of the commitments that have been made and, and monitoring them. And so the idea was if we're bringing companies into this net zero world and demanding they do better, we should be measuring that and we should be holding them to account and celebrating when they achieve it. So it's also a way of, of tra- being transparent, if you like, with the commitments that have been made. And this is the new carbon transparency partnership. I think you're measuring the carbon emissions of a business and that's the first step towards reducing them. Yes. And and you're talking in particular about scope three emissions well, and those are the ones that arise across value chains and they account for the major share of all emissions. So that seems to be an interesting initiative. That's right. And so so it's so the, the idea of the for the reporting to COP was all the emissions, but you're quite right to focus on scope three because most of a company's emissions are indirect, i.e. they happen in their suppliers or their customers, and it varies a lot by by industry. But but ultimately, you know, if you if you want to try and decarbonize the whole system, you know, you have to deal with them. Now your scope three emissions might be my scope one emissions. <laughs> this is the other thing. So what so what we needed to do was find a system where we could aggregate all the reporting of those, allocate them, and have a way of measuring them across supply chains. And so, yes, indeed, WBCSD, along with McKinsey and Unilever, set up a project called the Scope 3 Transparency Pathfinder, which is basically creating a data lake of emissions and creating, it's a bit like an internet access protocol, creating a protocol where you can report those emissions in in a standardised format. Oh, and by the way, 
you know, there are competitive challenges here as well. So everything we do needs to be legally watertight. And that project, the Carbon Transparency Pathfinder, has been amazing and is a real game changer. I'd love to get some examples without naming names of companies that are really doing spectacularly interesting and positive things. I can. So, and this is where I think the WBCSD's global footprint is so interesting because it has members from all continents, you know, all all around the world, all sectors. And so consumer goods companies that's headquartered in Brazil has basically built in nature and sustainability into everything it does, including the product design process. So the product designers, both of the actual compounds, but also the packaging are effectively given a suite of, you know, nature positive materials to work from. It's it's really cool. Another company, again, another consumer goods company, linking executive compensation to delivery of CO2 reduction targets, but again, including scope three. So really trying to make carbon accounting as important as cash accounting. Engaging with supply chains, you know, again, looking at some of the utility companies who are members who are working with their supply chains all the way down to very, very small companies to make sure that they can validate, but also that they can support their suppliers. Because once you know, this is all, this is relatively easy if you're a Fortune 100 company. If you're an SME sitting there, where do you get these tools? Where do you get the skills? So that sense of self-help within supply chains. Collaboration, I think, is key. And again, we talked about the carbon transparency pathfinder. You know, of course, preserving all of the usual competitive protocols, but actually getting companies in the same industry to collaborate on how they might share their data and resources. And of course, how they might work with their suppliers, because they will often have suppliers in common. And then the final thing I'd focus on is just really bold leadership. I think one of the characteristics of these companies who are real game changers is CEO conviction. Pick a utility, a big utility company based in Europe. You know, the CEO just decided a long time ago that they were going to be in renewables, they were going to get out of their fossil fuel vehicles, and they were just going to go for it. And sometimes the regulatory environments would help, sometimes they would hurt, but this was the company's mission. And I, that's just great. Uh, and I think that actually CEO conviction is often the thing that starts this journey. And it's, it's really incredible when you see it. Yes, we recently interviewed for the podcast Ron O'Hanley from State Street, who's also made a big commitment to net zero. Yes. So that that was that was an interesting case study as well. Yeah, I mean, and you can see that with BlackRock, you can see it with you know, Unilever to be a company. There is just this really strong conviction that that helps those companies ride through what can be often a, a bumpy pathway. Are you seeing SMEs joining the council? Well, we do actually have an SME rate, which I'm not here to advertise, but we do encourage SMEs and innovators to join the council. And there are, of course, other options. So the International Chambers of Commerce, led by a former head of the WBCSD, Paul Pullman, that is another way for SMEs to engage. But no, we definitely are seeing these kind of interest and, and, and also, you know, funded platforms out there for SMEs to actually upskill their profiles and work out what and how on earth they can they can participate. So it's a bit of a change of tack, but given that these are very dark days at the moment, we've just got over COVID, we've now got 
the invasion of Ukraine. I increasingly tried to switch off by going for a walk out in nature and doing some wildlife photography. So birds have become a very large part of my life. And I, I, I believe you're an avid beekeeper. Yes, we keep bees. We started, we, we, we started off doing what's called natural beekeeping, where you don't, to be technical, you don't give the bees a, a, a pre-made frame of foundation, wax foundation, they build their own. But we have now diversified into these more, more commercial bee hubs. But beekeeping is absolutely fascinating. And we're lucky enough to have our hives just in the middle of Salisbury Plain, which for global listeners is a very unimproved big piece of grasslands uh, tens of miles wide and deep and it's a fantastic environment to keep bees it's you know it's basically organic well fascinating so listen we're, we're getting towards the end of our chat and what we like to do is just do some rapid sure. fire questions and quick answers so my first one is what makes you most pessimistic oh I think an attitude of nothing ever changes. So, so, so I'm a great one for let's just try it. You know, I, I, I mean, of course, I like process. Of course, I like you know, but but the, but the thing that makes me most pessimistic: people saying it's always been this way; it's never going to change. I just think we can we can all be a little bit more creative and a bit more optimistic about how we approach the world. So I think so. What makes me most pessimistic is kind of pessimism in other people. I think. And what makes you most optimistic? Well, I, I love. I, I guess what I what makes me optimistic is talking to people who are prepared to think big about the problems we have and prepared to work out ways to collaborate. And whether it's in a university setting, I, I love working with students. They're you know brilliant when they come in, and they're you know my children are university age too, and they just are full of good ideas and conviction. And I just find that so compelling. And also, look, I'm quite optimistic about the human state. I mean, I know we're in dark times, but I grew up in the 1960s when, you know, I, I don't I don't remember nuclear drill, but I remember nuclear weapons being a, being a problem. I, I marched to get rid of them. And it felt like a really dark time. And it felt like we had some horrendous global crises. And by and large, you know, poverty has gone down. We have improved the state of development in very many countries. We've reduced infant and maternal mortality. We have done some good stuff as a species. And I never want to forget that. I think it's very easy to talk down what we haven't, what we, what we have done and to focus on the negatives. How different has your life been to the one you envisaged as a girl? Oh gosh, Janet, I, I, I couldn't be more different. I don't. I don't even think I had an imagination. I just bumbled around in the southwest of the country, like you. I, I love to go for walks in nature and and look at things. But I, I mean, nobody in my family had ever been to university, and so for me, I've had the most extraordinary education experiences. Lived all over the world, met incredible people. It, it couldn't be more different, and I'm so grateful and thankful. But I also think that, that you know, I get asked a bit sometimes. <laughs> what's your sort of motto and I think it's just why not why not try it why not do something different why not give carbon removal a go you know just just try stuff so so I so I think you you, you know you make some of your own pathway by just you know wanting to try different things if you weren't specializing in climate change what would you be doing what would your passion be? I would be a vet what's the one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners just do it don't make perfect the enemy of the good. 
So in the cl- the climate space is extraordinary to me, and I, and I, and I can and I can have my hypotheses as to where it's come from, but I have never heard so many people talking us out of doing things. You know, no that that company is not allowed to sell petrol when it offsets the carbon because it will mean that it'll keep selling petrol. And I say, yeah, but people are buying it because they've got diesel cars because we haven't built the infrastructure to plug in the electric vehicles. So suddenly, so, so um, and by the way, if that company doesn't sell diesel, a state-owned enterprise in you know Africa will happily sell the last drop of diesel. I just think we treat this global imperative of climate recovery as if it is an academic exercise and and it petrifies everybody you're not allowed to do this we're going to rate your pathway this is not the way that the industrial revolution or the tech revolution worked and it and it slightly drives me bonkers <laughs> so i think my advice would be yes of course you know you need the external advice yes of course we have to build consensus but you know what greenpeace is never going to say company x is doing well they're just not so that's fine. Let's just accept that and let's let's move on and let's try and do the best that we can and also know that you know many of our efforts will be imperfect. But if you care about the Keeling curve, as I do, and I go and check it and every year it goes up inexorably, we should just be focused on inflecting that curve. And since the COP process started, since we started talking about this, emissions have doubled. So clearly what we've done has not gone as well as it could do. So let's just try, let's stop having these arguments about perfection and let's just get on with it. Well, on that very can-do note, Claire, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Janet. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.